All right, Luke chapter 3 tonight, and we have again an outline for you. If you did not get outlines, we might have some extras on the table up here. So I'll tell you what, let's do it this way. If you, haven't, if you don't have an outline, raise your hand, please. Keep that hand up, we'll get outlines to you. Oh, if you have an extra one, hold your hand up. Okay, sorry. We'll get, we'll get these outlines to you as quickly as possible. We even have some up here. We want everybody to have an outline. So by the time we're done the study of Luke, you should have 24 outlines, one for every chapter. Okay? All right. So before we get into chapter 3, just a reminder that Luke wrote this book that we study now and read as really just a portrait of the life of Christ to one individual whose name was Theophilus. And he wrote this to Theophilus to confirm him in in his faith, to give him more stability and strength in what he already believes. One of the things that the Bible teaches us is this. Evidence does not create faith. Evidence always confirms faith. And that's exactly what the book of Luke does. It gives us evidence concerning the life of Christ. Again, evidence will not create faith. Faith has to already be there. But what evidence will do is that evidence will confirm us in our faith. And that's what the Gospel of Luke is all about. In chapter 3, we are finally introduced to a man, John the Baptist. One of the most unique Bible characters in, in history. And Jesus said, there, there was no one ever born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. So he was certainly someone that we need to spend a little bit of time with. And I want to, first of all, again, look at the backdrop of John's ministry in the first six verses. And I want us to see, once again, the historical context. You'll notice there that Luke takes two verses, the first two verses in chapter 3, to tell us about all the political leaders and all the spiritual leaders. So all the political leaders of Rome, all the political leaders in Palestine, and then all the spiritual leaders leading the nation of Israel at the time all of this takes place. A couple of reasons why he does that. One, again, he's trying to establish that Jesus was in the flow of history. That that everything in Jesus' life can be established by the fact that it took place right in the middle of history that can be verified and confirmed. So again, this sort of helps, again, solidify Uh, everything that we know about Jesus, everything that we're going to know about John because of the historical context that Luke takes the time to talk to us about and that can be verified in history. The second reason, though, he talks about this historical context is, again, just like last week, he wants us to be reminded of something very important. That God was not announcing the coming of the Messiah through the political leaders of the world. He didn't choose a political leader of the world to prepare the way for Jesus to come. He did not choose one of the spiritual leaders of Israel to announce the Messiah was coming. 
He chose an obscure prophet out in the wilderness to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. And so again, it reminds us that we've got to be careful that we're not looking to say the power brokers of this world, God may not be working in or through them at all. God may be powerfully working over here and we may be missing it because we're looking in the wrong direction. We're looking at the powerful people of the world. We're looking at the, at the political movers and shakers. And here's God over here working wonderfully over here. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't work through them. But just like in John's day, we have to realize that God will work through the people who humble themselves and who desire to walk with him. He'll work through them and he'll work through them powerfully. If the powerful do not want to humble themselves, then God's not going to work in and through them like he does common ordinary people. And hopefully that will be an encouragement to all of you tonight, because I look at myself as just a common ordinary person, but God can work through me. I should not limit what God wants to do or can do through me just because I might not have a, a certain uh, position, a certain power, certain, you know, a role in, in the world. That has nothing to do with how God can use us and how God can work through our lives. So that's why John, or why Luke, excuse me, sets the historical context. Then notice the scriptural context. Down in verse 4, John wants us to understand that the prophet, John the Baptist, was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. And he talks to us about Isaiah's prophecy a little bit, quoting him here in verses 4, 5, and 6. And I just want to pick out a couple of things. First of all, Isaiah the prophet said about the coming of John the Baptist that this would be the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. The word shout there means a strong voice. God needed a strong voice at this time in history. Remember, God had not spoken for 400 years. And now all of a sudden, God was going to send John the Baptist to, to build the road for Jesus Christ to come. And that he needed a strong voice. God needs strong voices today, just like John the Baptist. Next, he says that John's primary mission is to prepare the way for the Lord. We've talked throughout our study of Luke about how important it is to God that preparation takes place. That we prepare ourselves to hear from God, to receive from God, that we are a prepared people. In fact, even heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. We don't wait till we die to figure out. No, we know ahead of time. We have been prepared to go to heaven. Preparation is huge. We're going to get more out of the word of God. We're going to get more out of our walk with God if we take time to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive from God. And so in order to get the maximum benefit out of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God wanted to send John the Baptist so that he could prepare the way. And in this language that's used here about making his path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be made straight. The rough ways will be made smooth. This is taken from the Oriental custom in those days of sending on before kings on their journeys persons to level out the roads and to make them more passable. And that's exactly the picture that Jesus or that God wants us to have of John's ministry. 
John is building, if you will, a road for Jesus to come in on. And he wants that road to be a road where the people are prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Here's what I want us to take out of that. I believe that just like John, God not only wants us to be a strong voice at times in our society, God wants us to be building roads for him into other people's lives so that God has an access to them. And, and when he does speak, when he does come in, there are, there's a road, if you will, into their lives. That's exactly what John's ministry was, to prepare the way for people's hearts and minds to be ready that when God did come in, when he did speak, there was going to be a passable road into their life. And then in verse 6, he talks about that humanity, all humanity, because Luke's concentration is not just that the Messiah came for the Jew, but that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of God, came for all people of all nations. And that they would see the glory of God in the salvation of people. That's what he's saying there in verse 6. So that sets the scriptural context of John's ministry. I want to take just for a moment then and talk about the personal context. Go back up to verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. A couple things. First of all, the word word of God means the active living voice of God. John heard God's voice. That's so important that you and I hear God's voice. John knew God was speaking to him, calling him, asking him to take on this role of preparing the way for the Lord. God wants us to be in a position where we hear the voice of God. Sometimes throughout the Bible, God was trying to speak to his people, but they either weren't listening or weren't recognizing the voice of God. The great thing about John is he was in a place where he could hear the active, living voice of God. Then notice it says the word of God came to John. Interesting word came in the Greek language. It means to apply pressure from above. And that's what God does. When when God wants us to do something for him, he will come into our lives and literally gently start to apply pressure. And he may have to up that pressure a little bit, but that's the way God works. He will apply pressure, if you will, to to get us to go in the direction that he wants us to go. And so the voice of God came to John and began through that word of God to apply pressure to John to cause him to follow God's will for his life and to become this prophet to prepare the way for God. But notice where this took place. It took place in the wilderness. The word wilderness means a place that is solitary, desolate, uninhabited. And, and what I get from that is that John had time alone with God. That was his context of how this all came about. You and I, in order to be who God wants us to be in public before others, have to have our private time alone with God. 
We've got to get alone with God and be quiet enough to hear His active living voice in our lives and to know when He is sort of applying that pressure, if you will, and trying to lead us or, you know, nudge us or prod us to go in a certain direction as our shepherd to lead us. And the only way that we can effectively do that is by getting alone with God. Then, after we do that, then we can come in and truly see the direction that God wants us to go and how he wants us then to interact with others. So that's the backdrop of John's ministry. We see the historical, scriptural, and personal context. Let's move on to the message of John's ministry beginning in verse 7. I'll just say this. John never read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. John said to the crowds that were coming out to be baptized by him, you offspring of vipers. Boy, that's really going to get people, isn't it? But some things we can learn about John. John was not afraid to confront people about sin. John was not afraid to talk about judgment. And I want you to notice something else. He, he defies, his ministry defies everything that the modern church tries to do as far as the whole church growth thing. You know, we need to, we need to go out and, and make things as comfortable as possible and you know, we need to have this and that. John was in the wilderness. John didn't go to the people. He made the people come out to him in the wilderness. He didn't go chasing after them. They came out to him. And when they got there, they didn't get a message of, you guys are really pretty good. No, they got a message of, you're a brood of vipers. And then he goes on to say, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but the message of John's ministry is primarily judgment is coming. Are you prepared? Part of the problem today is the church has swung the pendulum so far the other way to trying to make people comfortable and accommodate them that the church doesn't talk about judgment or hell, or sin, or anything like that anymore. And yet John had a very dynamic ministry. John's ministry touched lives because here's the deal. No person can really come to God. It's impossible for them to come to God until they first come to grips with their own sin and their own separation from God. And the fact that if they don't believe in Christ... As Jesus said in John 3, they're under God's condemnation already. That's what they need to come to grips with. And so before you can sort of embrace the good news, you've got to deal with the bad news, you see. And that's what John does. He's just like that doctor that doesn't want to give any of us news that we want to hear. Is that, you know, you have cancer. But here's the deal. We're going to go in and we're going to aggressively go in and we're going to get that cancer and we're going to tear it out. And that's exactly what John did. He wasn't afraid to tell the people, here's the deal. You're not going to like it, but it's for your own good. Are you prepared 
for judgment to come. The other part of John's message was the nature of genuine repentance. Now, John, primarily, if you were to say, what's the symbol or sign of John's ministry? It was baptism. But unlike our baptism, believer's baptism, where we are baptized to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and to publicly say to the world that we have become followers of Christ and and what we're doing outwardly is just an outward symbol of what took place in our hearts and then it looks back to what Christ did. John's baptism sort of looks ahead to what Christ is going to do. And again, it wasn't a baptism necessarily like ours. It was a baptism to prepare people for Jesus' ministry and what he was going to do. And it included repentance. Notice what John says. Verse 8, Therefore produce fruit that proves your repentance. Because in order to be baptized, John also said, you have to be willing to repent. And the word repent simply means, I've got to have a change of mind, a change of heart that results in a changed life, and I'm going in a different direction. In other words, John called people to give up their sin, to give up their lifestyle without God, to give up their unbelief, to give up anything and everything that was holding them back from coming to God and saying, you've got to be willing to give that up, and you've got to follow God. And the baptism then that John performed was in a sense a symbol of their willing to repent and let go of their sin and of their past and let God take them to where he wanted to take them. That was John's baptism. But notice, John talks about the fact that it's got to be genuine repentance. It can't just be that you say, yeah, I want to follow God. He says, you have to bring forth fruit. There's got to be outward evidence that you mean business with God. There can't be this talk about I mean business with God. You've got to show in your life that your life has changed, that that your mindset has changed because your life is changing and that other people can see it. This is exactly what we're going to talk about in a couple weeks in the book of James. Our good works are not what gets us to heaven or gets us saved. But good works are evidence that we are saved. And that's what John is saying. If you really mean business with God, then it's going to show up in your life. And notice he says, don't come to me and talk about the fact that you have Abraham as your father. Don't lean on the crutch that you're a Jew. Because again, it's not about externals. It's about internals. It's about your heart. Is your heart right with God. Because he says, I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham, even from these stones. By the way, there's a play on words there in the language. Banea is the word for children, and Anea is the word for stones. Very interesting sort of parallel there. Then in verse 9, even now, he says, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And notice in verse 9, the key word there is root. John the Baptist is getting to the root of the problem. So many times, pastors and spiritual leaders and even other Christians are unwilling to get to the root of the problem in our own lives or in what needs to be dealt with. John the Baptist doesn't care about that at all. 
He has been sent by God. He has been called by God. There is a divine calling upon his life. And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And the way to prepare people for the Lord is not to ignore judgment. And not to ignore talking about things like sin and repentance and a changed life. Those were the things that John talked about. So notice in verse 10. The crowds were asking him, then what should we do? In other words, how should we express our repentance? If I need to express my repentance, if I need to show people that my life has changed, how do I do that? And I want you to notice that there's a common theme running through verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. And that is basically that John says, here's how you'll show your repentance. By how you relate to other people. It's not about you. It's about others. When John answered them, the person who has two tunics must share with the person who has none. The person who has food must do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Collect no more than you are required to, because tax collectors always used to scrape off a little bit on the side more for themselves. And he said, No, that's not repentance. If you truly mean business with God, then you're going to start being fair in all your business dealings as tax collectors. Notice he doesn't tell the tax collectors that they have to change their profession. He doesn't tell soldiers to change their profession. He simply tells them that in whatever profession you're in, you just be honest. Do it with integrity and character. That will show you mean business with God. Verse 14, some of the soldiers also ask him, and as for us, What should we do? And he told them, take money from no one by violence or by false accusation. Don't use your position as a soldier to treat people again unfairly and extort or exploit them in any way. And be content with your pay. Soldiers many times were discontent with what they got. And he said, you truly mean business with God? Don't worry about what you get. Be content with that. Learn to find your contentment in God rather than in what you are paid. So this is the message of John's ministry. Notice the motives of John's ministry beginning in verse 15 and through 20. The motive, first of all, is pointing people to Christ. When the people were filled with anticipation, they all wondered whether perhaps John could be the Christ. Have you ever had somebody mistake you for Jesus? People did that with John. People actually thought that maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah. Can you imagine how that would go to someone's head? But notice, John humbled himself. In fact, John, the Gospel of John, records that John the Baptist said, I must decrease. Jesus must increase. And here, Luke records, John said to them, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I am is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. John is picking out something in that culture that was the lowliest of lowest things for a servant to do, which was take off the sandals of someone else. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be able to do that with the one who is coming. So he's elevating Christ. It's not about him. It's not trying to get followers to follow him. His motive is all about trying to get people to follow Jesus, which is why he said in the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He never wanted people to follow him. He wanted people to follow Christ. That was always the motive 
of John's ministry. And that should always be our motive as well. He goes on to say, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We sang about that tonight. Fire fall down. When John uses this term, this term always speaks about the purging that God wants to do in our lives. When God sends a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, fire is always there to purge out from our lives anything that shouldn't be there. And that's what John said Jesus was coming to do. Notice his winnowing fork, which was used to not only purge but to separate, is already in his hand to clean out his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his storehouse, but the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. John doesn't mince any words. But also in John's ministry, I want you to see something else. John did present a balanced approach to ministry. Yes, he talked about judgment is coming, and he wasn't afraid to talk about judgment and sin and repentance and all those things. But John also balanced that out in verse 18 by talking about the good news, the gospel. And in this way, verse 18, with many other exhortations, John proclaimed good news to the people. Literally, glad tidings. It's the Greek word euangelion, which where we get our word for gospel. John preached the gospel. He preached the good news. But again, before people can embrace the good news, they got to hear the bad news. They got to understand that their sin has separated them from God. And the whole reason that they need a savior is because they can't save themselves. None of us can. And that the only cure for our sin is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, what he will do when he comes. That was John's message. Because you'll notice in verse 19, he does call people out and expose them, even the most powerful political leaders of his day. He was not somebody who was intimidated. He was bold and courageous. And as we say, called a spade a spade, he didn't care. If it was truth, it was truth. Notice what he did when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil deeds that he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked up John in prison because he didn't want to hear about the fact that he did something wrong, that he had sinned by what he did. Just like many people today do not want to be confronted with their sin. Part of the problem in the church today, I'll just take a moment for this, And this is a line that I try to walk here at the Oasis. But it's not always easy to maintain that balance. You have churches say on one extreme that all they ever do is talk about the good. They they never talk about anything that might make people uncomfortable. They never talk about anything that might bring conviction to people or anything. It's all good. Nothing about judgment, hell, sin, any of that. That's wrong. But so is the other extreme, where you have churches and pastors and ministries that all they talk about is fire and brimstone and judgment. And and they never talk about anything positive. The biblical approach is a balanced approach because they're both found in the Word of God. And to me... The easiest way to maintain that balance is just to go through the Bible and teach it. Because as you and I go through the Bible and teach it, God has balanced out, if you will, those two very well, better than any man could do. 
that's part of the reason when people ask me, why do you just choose books of the Bible and go through them? Because by taking books of the Bible and just going through them, it prevents me from sort of having those pet, pet messages that I just recycle, like a lot of pastors do, or getting on my own hobby horse about something that I feel strongly about, and I'm going to hammer everybody about this for five or six weeks. By just going through the Word of God, we let God speak to all of us as His people in a balanced way. And sometimes there's going to be positive exhortation, and sometimes there's going to have to be things where we deal with sin and repentance and all that kind of stuff. That's the balanced approach. It's just like today... You have churches that uh, are a mile wide and an inch deep. And you've got others that they're just all about them and never reaching out. And it's, it's balance. It's balance. It's balance. And you see this in John's ministry. All right. Let's get to the baptism of Jesus tonight. Many people, when they come to verse 21 of Luke or any of the other Gospels and they talk about the baptism, first of all, it's like, why is Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized by John? If John's baptism is all about, you know, repentance and and forsaking our sin, and Jesus doesn't have any sin to forsake or repent of, then why is Jesus being baptized by John? A couple reasons why. The meaning of Jesus' baptism. First of all, Jesus wanted to lend legitimacy to John's ministry. By being baptized by John, Jesus, in a sense, and God is saying, what this man, John the Baptist, is doing has God's stamp of approval. Also, the second thing it means is that Jesus was allowing himself to be identified, to be in union with humanity. That's what Emmanuel, God with us. And even though Jesus technically didn't need to be baptized by John, again, to repent of any sin, the word baptized simply means to be identified with. And Jesus was allowing himself to be identified with all the people who were coming to John to be baptized. Because again, as Luke already pointed out, Jesus has come for all of humanity and wants to identify with all of humanity and reach out to each and every individual. The other thing it means is that Jesus now was providing, in a sense, continuity I look at the baptism of Jesus as sort of the baton being handed now from John the Baptist to Jesus. And from here on out, John now is not going to baptize anyone anymore. Jesus is on the scene. He has prepared the way through his message, through his baptism, through his life. He's now pointing people to Jesus and saying, Behold, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In fact, his own followers, people who were following John the Baptist, now he encourages them in a sense to stop following him, stop hanging with him. You start hanging around Jesus. He's the one you need to be with. And so that's sort of the baton being passed and a perfect continuity in the plan of God between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. How about the message of Jesus' baptism? 
The message is simply this. You'll notice there that as Jesus was being baptized, the Bible says the heavens were opened. The word open means to break into. It was a sign that heaven was breaking into earth. And here was the answer coming. The answer is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit would descend on him like a dove. A voice would come from heaven saying, You are my dear, beloved Son, in whom I take great delight. These words, really, what God the Father is saying here is, This is my choice. This man, Jesus, he's my man. He's my choice. He's the Messiah. If you want to be right with me, then you need to listen to him. That's the message of Jesus' baptism. In, in a sense, the baptism of Jesus is Jesus' coming out. It, it's his proclamation now to the world at the very beginning of his ministry that I am the Messiah. Here's the witness from God himself. God said, he's the one. If, if all the other you know, prophecies already fulfilled in Jesus' life hasn't shown you if the testimony of Anna and Simeon and all of them, the shepherds, everything that's happened up to this point in his life, if that hasn't shown you enough, then God himself says at the baptism of Jesus, he's the one. Follow him. And so there's great meaning in the baptism of Jesus. By the way, let me say this, because I do have time to close tonight on time. Um, For those of you that are thinking about baptism, some people ask me about this. I'm just going to say this because we would love to have a baptism in October. I think baptism is important. It is not obviously required for salvation. It is not part of our salvation. But I think what Jesus himself teaches is that baptism is a step of obedience in a Christian's life. What's the Great Commission say? What does Jesus say? He says to the church, go into all the world, baptizing them. Not only making disciples, but baptizing them in the name of the Father. It is part of what he's called the church to do. And so I don't think we overemphasize it and say, hey, unless you're baptized, you're not going to go to heaven. That's absolutely not true. But to say that baptism is unimportant, or it's no big deal, that's minimizing it as far as I'm concerned as well. Again, balanced. I think it is a step of obedience for the Christian. And so I say this, if you've never been baptized, immersed, that's what the word baptized means. I would encourage you to think about it and pray about it. I think it's a wonderful step for a believer to take. Some people have asked me, well, Jeff, I was baptized so long ago or whatever that I don't even remember it. Could I be rebaptized? Or when I was baptized, I was baptized maybe as a child or whatever, but I wasn't a Christian. Since then, I have become a Christian. Is it okay for me to be rebaptized? And my answer to that is yes. I have rebaptized hundreds of people in ministry over the years who were at one time in that place. And again, I leave it up to them. But I just share this at this point because I think it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about baptism. It's up to you, but we certainly are going to give you that opportunity. If you'd like to be baptized, just let me know, my wife know, and we will, you know, get you on that list. If you have any further questions about it, 
you know you can certainly talk to me about it, I hope, any time. We come then to the last part of this chapter, the genealogy of Jesus. And this is one of those parts in Scripture where most Christians just shut down. It's a list of names. Oh, my goodness. And, and a lot of people are like, why does God include these lists of all these names? What, well, one of the things I share with people is, but what if your name was in there? You would think that was the coolest part of the Scriptures. Hey, Luke chapter 3 is the best part of Scripture because my name is in there. But there are a couple real important reasons why God included this genealogy. One, again, going back to what we said at the very beginning, Luke wants to establish historical context, historical reliability, so that people understand that what God did was in the flow of history. It wasn't outside of history. God broke into human history and is following the flow of human history. And if you doubt that all of this is true, He's giving you all the ancestral line that people can follow. Way before Ancestry.com, God had that all figured out. So I want to just pick out a couple. I, I could have picked out more, but again, for the sake of time, I got five minutes, I wanted to pick out a couple. The first is, I want you to see in the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus and Joseph, and what is said here in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. He was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So one of the things that Luke is reminding us of is that Jesus is unique. He is the Son of God because his father was not a human father. His father, if you will, or he was born through the power of the Holy Spirit, as the angel said to Mary. He really, Joseph, obviously, is in the line. But Joseph technically was not Jesus' father. And he wants to point that out. That's a very important point. Jesus was born of a virgin. We're going to talk about that at Christmas time. Isaiah 7, 14. Then notice in verse 31 and 34, he mentions David and Abraham. And the reason why these and those other names are important is because Luke is also establishing by David and Abraham that Jesus' lineage, ancestry, can be traced back to the very beginning of the Jewish nation with Abraham and up through David, which is exactly what the Bible predicted. So that anyone who wanted to say, is Jesus legitimately in the line of the Messiah? Does Jesus fulfill all the requirements that were necessary for the Messiah, the answer through this genealogy, for those who care, to dig, would say, yes. There's nothing in Jesus' ancestry that prevents him. In fact, all things in Jesus' ancestry point to the fact that he was the promised Messiah. He did fulfill everything that the Messiah needed as far as his ancestral line. And then finally, in the very last verse of the chapter, unlike Matthew, who doesn't go back to Adam, he only goes back to Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man in the Garden of Eden. Why does he do that? A couple of reasons why Jesus and Adam are linked. First of all, again, what is Luke's, one of Luke's values? What's one of his 
themes? What's one of the things he wants to make sure everyone understands? Especially Theophilus, the only guy he thought would ever read this. That Jesus Christ came for all humanity. Well, if you trace it all the way back to Adam, everybody came from Adam, no matter where they are. So the idea is that Jesus links with everybody in the world. That Jesus came for all people by linking him all the way back to Adam. But the other reason he mentions Jesus and Adam here in this genealogy is it's very important that it's understood that when you look at Adam, that Jesus, according to the Bible, Paul, is the second Adam. That the first Adam was created by God to express God's image and his likeness and his character. But when sin entered into Adam and Eve, God's image and all of that was marred through sin. So what the first Adam, in a sense, could not fulfill, God had to send Jesus Christ, the second Adam, to restore, if you will. And so that, so that there could be one who could then truly express the image of God to the world. That was, that's what God wanted the first Adam to do. But he could not do that when sin came. So the second Adam, Jesus Christ, had to come in order to fulfill God's desire to have someone on earth who would perfectly represent him to the world. And the only one who's ever done that was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One other thing, and then we'll close. This genealogy also reminds us of something that we all wrestle with. And that is this. We've got to learn as Christians to wait on God's timing. Think about it. This genealogy is reminding us that God made a promise of the Messiah long time ago. But it's only been now that those promises are being fulfilled and realized. That God has a reason for everything flowing down through history and that God is the God of history. But we must realize that there are purposes and designs beyond our ability to be able to wrap our minds around. And so God also wants us to see when he lays out these long lines of history that in each and every line, in each and every name, in each and every family, each and every year that goes by, his plan is being fulfilled and accomplished. And that we have to learn, even in our own lives, to wait on God's timing for things rather than trying to force God to live on our timetable. And when you come to a genealogy, that should be one of the things you and I are confronted with all the time. God wasn't in any hurry, was he? The promise was made hundreds of years but Jesus was going to come at exactly the right time in God's timetable, not our timetable. And we've got to be reminded when we look at genealogies and other passages like this, that's one of the things God wants us to take away from there. God doesn't work in history based upon our timetable. 
God works in our lives and in the life of this world and in the history of this world based upon His purposes, His plan, and His timetable. So all I can say to that is, God, please give me patience to wait on you. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for reminding us about the ministry of John the Baptist. Lord, his ministry, his life alone should be an encouragement to every Christian for this reason. Here was a man that the world would have just forgotten about. Again, obscure, out of the way, in the wilderness, nothing special, all of that. Not one of the powerful political leaders, not one of the powerful spiritual leaders in Israel, but he was a man who was willing to get alone with you and hear your voice and be faithful to what you called him to. And because of that, you used him mightily, mightily to get people ready for you to do a great work. And God, the same thing can be true in our lives. If we will just be faithful and listen to your voice and be willing to follow and get alone with you, you can use us in unbelievable ways. We don't have to have a certain position. We don't have to have a certain amount of power. That has nothing to do with it. All we have to do is be connected to the Almighty God and anything is possible. God help us to see tonight also that in the flow of all this, that God is preparing hearts so that people will be open and receptive to what you want to do in their lives. And help us to see, Lord, that every day that we live our lives, you may want to use us in someone else's life. Not just to work in our lives, that's certainly true, but you may want to use us in someone else's life, Lord, to build a road into their life that you can travel on, that you can grab a hold of their heart and their mind through a road that we have built, just like John was building a road for others as well. God, I pray that we would realize, Lord, just how much you love us and how much you want to use us and help us not to waste one day on this earth thinking that, God, there's nothing that you could do with me that is simply not biblical. That's not true. You want to use us every day to affect eternity in some way. I believe every day that there is some life, some difference that we can make in someone else's life. Every day. In fact, even if it's just us alone with you all day, that that is setting us up then to even be more effective when we do get around someone else to be used by you to influence them in a positive way. One day with you is never wasted. You're always using it in our lives to just build into our lives to use us even more. So God, help us to be open to that as John was. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you Sunday.